This is episode 157 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Michael Grower. He is an emeritus professor of the Department of Communicative Disorders at the University of Redlands in Redlands, California. Dr. Grower has spent most of his career working as a medical speech pathologist in acute and long-term care settings. The majority of his hospital work was done for the Department of Veterans Affairs in Seattle, Tacoma, New York, and Tampa. He is best known for his pioneering work with patients who have swallowing disorders. The majority of his work is summarized in three textbooks, Dysphagia, Diagnosis and Management, three editions, Introduction to Adult Swallowing Disorders, and Clinical Management of Dysphagia in Adults and Children, second edition. Dr. Grower is an ASHA Fellow and Honors Recipient, as well as a past founding associate editor for the journal Dysphagia. He is an honorary member of the Japanese Society of Dysphagia Rehabilitation. And I am so grateful to have Dr. Grower on this episode. We are celebrating 2 million downloads of the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I am so grateful to everyone who has joined in on this endeavor. I'm grateful to all of the speakers that we've had and all of you that tune in every week. So thank you so much. Um, so this is an excellent episode for us to have Dr. Grower because he's going to really just talk about where we've been as a profession, where we're going. You know, he's he's been around this field for quite some time. So really excited for you guys to hear this conversation. Um, also wanted to mention that Dr. Grower has several courses on MedBridge. Um, if you're interested in joining MedBridge, you can use promo code SYP, and that gives you the premium membership for only $95 for one full calendar year. Um, we do get a portion of those proceeds. They go back into keeping this podcast going. But if you would like to hear some of Dr. Grower's courses on MedBridge, he teaches treatment approaches to upper esophageal sphincter disorders, GERD and the UES, pharyngoesophageal relationships, disorders of the esophagus for the speech-language pathologist, medical and ethical dilemmas, nutrition for adults with dysphagia, adults, adults with dysphagia, case studies for interactive problem solving. So um, thank you, Dr. Grower, for being on this episode, and I hope you all love it very, very much. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good afternoon, Dr. Grower. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. All right. So I, as I was just telling you, this episode is going to air in honor of hitting 2 million downloads for the Swallier Pride podcast, which is pretty insane for a teeny tiny little podcast about swallowing. But... I wanted to have somebody on the podcast that could actually speak to kind of where we've been as a field and where we're going. And I thought you would be just the perfect fit. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, yeah. It's 
Yeah, it's been a long um, sort of journey. I'll tell you that yes. from where we began and where we are now. So um, hopefully we can, you know, sort of go through some of that stuff today. Yep. Okay. Um, do you want to tell the people a little bit about yourself if they don't know who you are? Well, I, I, mean, I got my PhD at the University of Washington in 1975. And uh, during that period of time before that, I was working um, which I'll talk about at the Seattle VA hospital where all of this sort of the interest in these patients began. And then, so I s spent the majority of, of my career in, in the VA system in Seattle, American Lake Tacoma, New York, and then Tampa, and then left there and went up to, uh, work, uh, at Shands and Gainesville with, with Mike Crary and, and then I was there for six years, and then I uh, actually came back to California to my undergraduate University of Redlands and taught there for 13 years. So, and so that's you know, in a in a nutshell, kind of what I did. And along the way, tried to do as much research as possible, and um, ended up trying to um, teach. All of that, which has sort of been crammed into my head all those years in, in working uh, as, a, as a clinician, basically, a clinician researcher in all of those settings. Yep. You know, it's, it's fascinating. I, you know, when I first started this podcast, I really just wanted us, you know, I just wanted people to kind of talk about their research and things that are out there in journals that, you know, we might not have, have seen the light of day at some point for some reason whatsoever. And I remember I was I was doing some research. I was looking at something and I think it was maybe like in the 80s, you had published a paper about the statistics of patients in a nursing home that had dysphagia. And I was like, holy crap, we've had this kind of data since the 80s. Yeah. Was, it, was that the, the pseudobobar uh, study that talked about diets? Maybe. Yes, it was, that's yeah. it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I actually actually did that uh, study when I was a, a doctoral student and I got the opportunity to go to a uh, nursing home setting. Uh, and uh, the head of that, an MD, was very supportive of what I was doing there with dysphagic patients. And we did a, you know, fairly well controlled study just about how one might change a diet, for instance, not giving patients with pseudobulbar dysphagia just puree, you know, rather give them regular food, soft food. And we compared one group with the pureed food versus another group that you got real food and looked at the outcome measure was actually aspiration pneumonia in six months and 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 showed that that just that adjustment made a big difference in terms of the pneumonia. So that was, yeah, that was actually one of the studies that I sort of sat on for a long time and didn't realize how important it might be until we actually got to, um, you know, put together the dysphagia journal and, and we got it in there. Yeah, but that's so fascinating because I think, you know, a lot of this stuff we think, oh my gosh, is this new research? How did we not know this? And then we're like, no, it's been sitting in a dysphagia journal for yeah, yeah. <laughs> 30 There's years a lot now. of that. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of that. So my uh, uh, first exposure to this, there were, um, uh, to dysphagia was, uh, there were 
four doctoral students at the Seattle VA who were actually supported as trees. And in the early 70s, probably the key person, and I can actually say he's kind of the father of dysphagia from an SLP standpoint, was a guy named George Larson. And George was our mentor. And um, he was very uh, medically based in terms of his perspective from SLP. So we really, you know, had to pick up a lot of what we know now as medical speech pathology from him. And he involved us uh, fairly often in, in rounds on the ENT service and particularly the neurology service. And one day, I would say in about 1972, the, the chief of neurology, who was a, um, a German neurologist, very heavy accent, uh, Henry Luffman, I can remember him, said to George, you know, we've got patients on this floor who have communication problems, obviously, aphasia, dysarthria, and trauma, et cetera. But, you know, if you could really help us with this swallowing disorder that these people have, that would be a big help. So George took that information back to him, back to the, just sort of stored it away, and he went into the literature and he basically found that there was a bunch of stuff about how we swallow, but nothing about treatment. So he took his uh, medically based background and, and sort of, if you look back, it, the first paper that really appeared about dysphagia from an SLP standpoint was written by him in 1974 in the journal of uh, what was then the speech and hearing disorders. And he talked about the differences between bulbar and pseudobulbar dysphagia. And then he followed up with another paper in a nursing journal that talked a little bit about his perspective on treatment. So we started seeing patients um, in 72 and 73, you know, on uh, dysphagic patients and his perspective pretty much was focused not so much on the things uh, uh, that we came to learn from Dr. Logeman, but on more of um, identifying the problem and then doing things about managing diet. And he was really in the nursing journal report that he wrote, it was all about feeding perspectives and how one might go about feeding somebody with it. And so he developed this very sophisticated system of volunteers in the hospital of going up, training them and showing them how to feed somebody that might, you know, be at risk for uh, a swallowing problem. So, so that's, you know, kind of what, when it all started. And I can remember very well in, um, 1976, uh, at the ASHA convention, that we, Dr. Logeman, presented a case, case studies of patients with head and neck cancer who had swallowing problems. And I was really shocked that somebody else was really working in this area. And if you look back at, at her history, and of course, she was one of the, the first persons to really 
help us out in this area was that she was looking at the speech problems in patients with Parkinson's disease using video fluoroscopy and came across obviously that they were having some swallowing problems and therefore you know espouse the use of video fluoroscopy in identifying some of the problems but i went up to her at that convention i remember very well and said gee whiz how long have been working with these patients with swallowing problems and she said from the early 70s and that was our experience um, also also fascinating yeah so um, one of the one of the uh, earliest things that might be sort of interesting to your to your listeners is it's probably the first case ever of using an electrical stimulation in a patient who had a swallowing problem uh, that we did with one of our patients, one of my patients in nineteen about seventy three, and it was a it was a young guy who was thirty four years old. He had an acute an occult uh, hydrocephalus. And his issue was he just really couldn't make a swallow. So Dr. Larson, you know, tried, you know, sensory stimulation. He said, let's remember one time he said, let's just stuff his mouth full of ice and see if that would trigger a swallow. And that didn't work. (laughs) So he told us, he said, well, let's think about maybe electrical stimulation. And of course, we're just young interns. We said, well, okay, let's think about that. And there was in the ENT service, they didn't really have a formal Hilger facial nerve stimulator, but it was sort of a, uh, somebody had actually made this nerve stimulator and it was in a, in a uh, veneered box. I don't know what was inside of it, but it had wires coming out and it, and it was, and it had a on and off switch, and it had a a dial that sort of, I guess, set the the stimulation amount. But there was really no dial that that told you about that. So, so we took this thing up to the floor, and we have this patient who's unable to trigger any kind of a swallow, and there was a sort of a ball on the end of the nerve stimulator that you had to put a um, piece of, of uh, gauze over it and you dipped it in saline. And then you were going to apply this electrical current to this patient to see if you could trigger a swallow. And so I'm, the, you know, I'm in charge of this patient and Dr. Larson's standing there. And, and so I dip it in and, and I, I say, well, you know, how far do I turn this thing up? And he, he said, I don't know, maybe halfway. So I cranked the dial up about halfway and I said, well, where do we stimulate? And he said, well, how about the thyroid notch? I said, okay, I did that. So we turned it up, put that on this guy's thyroid notch. And I, and I, can, always, I can still remember that his hyoid bone almost jumped out of his neck when we did it. Oh, my God. But it stimulated a swallow, and, and we put something in his mouth so he could swallow it. And right after that, it was like a light turned on in his head, and, and he finished his whole meal right after that. So, but that's, that's a, obviously a single case, never reported, but it was a part of our training. George didn't want to do that again because he was worried about 
the issue of maybe laryngeal spasm that you could, you know, trigger from that and, and the resulting, um, but we never did it again. But in that one case, that was probably, again, one of the earliest, if not, you know, the only case of, of using electricity to stimulate a swallow. George was so well known in the medical center uh, that he did all of the training for the neurology residents on how to evaluate the cranial nerves. And he also was always called upon throughout the hospital. If you, if a resident couldn't pass an NG tube, they beep George. And he was able to do it with his knowledge of, you know, the head and neck. And so, so we got this kind of training that, um, you know, many of you on this call have, have had over the years, but it was brand new to us. And certainly, I think, set the, the stage for all of the medical issues that you have to deal with when you're dealing with, with uh, dysphagia. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really almost love the ingenuity that that yeah. you guys did with <laughs> quote mm. unquote jump starting the swallow there. You know, it's like it, it stinks that we can't, you know, be that. Um, I don't know what, what word I'm trying to use. Can't be that creative nowadays with our patients. No, but no. I love the ingenuity involved there. Yeah. Yeah. That was his style. Yeah. <laughs> very, you know, very interesting guy and uh, gave us the background that all of us needed to sort of uh, move on and uh, certainly got my interest, you know, in, in these patients. And, and that sort of took me, uh, I, I, I moved uh, in, in 78 to the New York VA hospital and spent my clinical days um, there on mostly on the neurology ward. And as you can imagine, there were patients not only with communication, but communication slash swallow problems. And I took what I learned from Seattle to sort of a, a apply it there and uh, was very fortunate to uh, hook up with, with the dietitian there, Jeannie Curran, who, who also, um, you know, was sort of frustrated by all of these patients who had swallowing problems and what to do with them. But she worked with me intensely um, over the years and we published a couple of papers about diet and and how to manage swallow problems. But on the neuro ward there, about two or three years after I had arrived, we got a young neurologist who who came he was Harvard trained, brilliant guy, young, but he noticed that I guess he noticed me that 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 I was working, you know, trying to help patients with swallowing problems, which in the, you know, early 80s from an MD, pers MD perspective on a neuro ward was kind of unique. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. And so he he um, called me in one day, probably around 1982, and said uh, to me, I think this whole area is, is worth a book. And I was a little bit taken back by that. He would, you know, that he would think about that. But uh, another week went by and he'd sort of outlined about nine chapters. Oh my gosh. That, that we could do together. And it, 
you know, it was sort of the basic stuff that you might think about. He, he was interested in brainstem swallowing problems, and he had a couple of chapters on the normal neuro, and I did some ENT stuff and whatnot. So, so we outlined the chapter, and another week went by, and he found a publisher. And another week went by, and this person came down from Boston, and we sat down, and we signed a contract to do a book. So that, that was probably in the spring of 82. And in the summer of that year, Dr. Osborne, who was the MD, was unfortunately killed in an automobile accident. Oh, my gosh. And so I was sort of left um, thinking about, well, what am I going to do for a, a, a text? You know, am I going to do it? Am I going to drop out? And that time, <clears throat> I pretty much had thought that I'm going to change the focus of the book because of the focus of my work was really multidisciplinary. So when dysphagia diagnosis and management came out in, in 84, it was very much uh, contributions from all of the professions that we work with. So we had neurology, PT, nutrition, uh, we had ENT, we had radiology, we had GI, you know, so everybody, it was a con contribution of, of chapters of, of people that I had worked with in, in New York. And of course, that was preceded by the classic Logman text, which came out in 1983, which was, which was very, very different in, in, in an approach. As you recall, you know, it was really specifically oriented to SLPs and it was specifically oriented to treatment approaches that SLPs might do. And her approach at that time was very, very much oriented toward if you if you had to manage a patient that if you were going to manage a dysphagic patient, you had to do a video fluoroscopy study. And so that was something that, that I'd really not had that much experience with basically in New York because there were a lot of issues that were going on because the fluoroscopes weren't really set up to do in all medical centers to do video tape recordings of, of swallows. I, I can recall having to take my every time i did a video study in new york i took my vf unit on a cart from the 13th floor down to the first floor we had to get a special cable we had to plug it into the fluoroscope to make the video recordings i recognize the of course the importance of vf studies um but my training, as I've sort of kind of described and with Dr. Larson, had we were managing patients mostly with our clinical evaluations. And while we did use video there, actually video in Seattle was done with, in conjunction with the GI doc, who's Charles Pope, who was very famous esophagologist. Um, but the studies were actually done uh, he helped us out. You'd, you'd, you'd have the patient in the supine position and you were taking still, you were taking 
films and you were just taking still photos of when you thought the bolus might be going through the aerodigestive tract. So you'd end up having all of these pictures and you'd hope that you had something about, you know, that looked at the pharynx, looked at the UES, et cetera. So it was very- um, Sounds like a typical photographer. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, it, was, it was just a very interesting setup. And, you know, the thing that, that was really, coming out and very obvious to me in after the the 84 book came out was that there were a lot of people in particularly in the nursing home settings who were seeing so many patients with dysphagia who really didn't have access to vf and that was a frust yeah was it yeah with frustration for a long time and then we got into the whole big controversy about radiologists really not knowing about how to interpret the tests, uh, how they basically would stop doing the test if anything went into the airway. Um, And that went on for 15 or 20 years and people complaining that, you know, that they really weren't getting the full examination that they expected to get from 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 the radiologist yeah so let me let me we we can go back in time a little bit more but let me jump you ahead 30 odd some years here you know and i think what's so frustrating is that a lot of what you're saying is still very much what goes on today oh oh okay (laughs) you know and, and i think that's what's you know a big reason why i wanted to do this podcast was just to get a lot of education out there because I think a lot of people, you know, don't know what we're capable of doing. A lot of other professions don't know what we're capable of doing. I think our own profession doesn't realize what we're capable of doing sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. That I, I guess the, the one major thing along the lines of, of your thought that, that I've seen happen or, and, and makes me feel good is that, is that at least we've come to the point where somebody who has a suspected oropharyngeal swallowing problem in a medical center, they think about SLPs. And that was definitely not what was going on, you know, in the 80s and and early 90s. In fact, as you remember, ASHA even uh, sanctioned us from even touching somebody with dysphagia. And that went on forever and ever until they finally, you know, said because of the, the pressure in the field that it's part of the big nine now and we have to teach it. Um, and that's a whole nother big issue. But, um, but if, but I'm, I'm probably, you're probably right. There's still issues with, radiologists understanding the study with them cooperating uh but i do think and you can talk to me about this that at least we're recognized as someone to go to you know with a consult when there's a suspected oropharyngeal problem i I think it depends on the area okay (laughs) i I mean yes in in you know in the big big hospitals it's really you know, I don't know that I can say it's a specific region or a specific setting. It's just really, and, and I don't want to put all the onus on the clinician, but there really are just a lot of facilities that aren't referring properly. Um, and it's a staffing mm. issue too. You know, a lot of places will 
only call somebody in if, you know, they get a patient that needs 12 weeks of therapy. Yes. So it's, it's really, it's very widespread. You know, it's, it's some places it's a no brainer, you know, they have 20 speech pathologists at the, you know, regional trauma center, but then there's other places that still just, sorry, here's a feeding tube, you know, maybe somebody will find you in three months. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. The, the first group that actually really had a from all all md perspective some no some couple of it, one slp uh was at johns hopkins and in the after my book came out in 84 there was a, i couldn't believe how much interest there was in this patient group and um i thought that probably there was going to need to be a journal that was going to try to get articles to come and talk about the dysphagic patient. And so um, I had heard about the Johns Hopkins Swallowing Center. And so I called up the leader there, who was Martin Donner. and, And I said, I think I'd like to start a journal, but I need MD support for this. And he said, well, I've already thought about doing that with with Springer and, you know, eventually invited me to join the editorial board because he'd already set some of the some of the background for this. And and Martin was the uh, radiologist who uh, was the original editor uh, of of the journal. And um, just to give you an idea of his perspective uh, as a radiologist, his famous quote was um, when I see a when I see a patient aspirate, that's when I start the study. Love it. So, yeah, yeah. So he was doing, he was doing cine radiology, which in those days you were putting the images on one inch tape, which, which were really good, clear images, but was high dose radiation. And so, but anyway, he eventually, you know, went over to, you know, converting into into video, but his focus in the swallowing center. So they had, and the, these people probably influenced me a lot. So they had, um, you know, GI Jim Bosma was the was one of the leaders. Um, he was a pediatrician who had a long history of of dealing with with kids with swallowing impairment. Uh, but was very interested in in swallowing disorders. And they had GI, they had a neurologist, they had ENT, and they had weekly meetings uh, at, the, at the swallowing center. And there were two days a week when they bring outpatients mostly in for a full workup um, from two to three of the specialists on the team. But Martin and Jim Bosma developed the dysphagia journal uh, first uh, issue came out in 1986 and has continued, I think, to be an important, uh, you know, piece of, of literature. Um, the, the big worry in the beginning was that some of the specialists, uh, GI, ENT, nutrition, wouldn't publish in a multidisciplinary journal. They would rather publish in their own journals. but um, as it's evolved today, if you look at it today, they really 
you know, it draws from all of the sides of all the professions who are interested in this problem. And so that's, that's been very nice to, to see from my standpoint. So the Hopkins Swallowing Center in the, in the mid-80s actually put on a number of really key symposium, symposia that, that um, drew uh, large numbers of, of people and um, helped, I think, to sort of solidify the fact that, that this was a, almost a separate field, separate area that people were paying attention to. And they, along with the journal. So Martin and Bronwyn Jones and Reza Sakir um, got together and formed the Dystagia Research Society, first meeting in 1991. Um, and that has continued uh, to sort of solidify the research side, if you will, of, of people coming and presenting abstracts and oral presentations, et cetera, which has been uh, ongoing and continues to, to go um, and has linked with the Japanese um, and their society, their research society, and also with the European society. So there's been a, a, a great explosion, if you will, of, of international interest in this area and publication um, in, in the Dysphagia Journal. So the, those two, the, the, the society and the journal both have, I think, contributed a lot to our understanding not only of the problem but of course of of sort of telling guiding us in certain directions Uh, talk to me a little bit about you know kind of really when asha embraced this as part of our scope of practice wow you know um what i'm recalling right now is in the in the 90s, in the 90s, in the mid 90s, there were a lot of really nasty letters to the, to, the, to the leader saying that, you know, we don't belong here. We're not trained to do this, et cetera, et cetera. From some, you know, pretty respectable people, mostly from the, you know, the traditional Big Ten schools, as you might expect. And I'm, I, I really, Teresa, am not clear about when they actually included it as, you know, part of something that we should be educating people about. It was probably the early 90s before that really, really happened. So, and and then we had this whole scramble of, of universities trying to provide the education to people who, Asha said, this is one of the areas you have to be trained in. And I think most of that education was done by adjunct professors of people like yourself and, and, and others who had had some experience, you know, dealing with it. They may not have had so much experience in the classroom, but they put together a course, you know, based on, uh, on, on what they knew. But now I, I think that, that university programs have, have sought to hire people with backgrounds and expertise in this area. Although my guess is that some, some still uh, count on their, you know, adjuncts for, for support in, in the Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that's, and that's, what's just so crazy. I think is that we have some, 
you know, amazing researchers and some amazing professors and, you know, their students get a phenomenal education. And then we have others that, you know, pretty much just, you know, they found an adjunct that worked a few days in a nursing home and they're teaching them things from 30 years ago. And it's just really sad. So, so you think the training's a little uneven? It's very still? uneven. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. Right. So, you know, and, and it's not, you know, I don't think you can blame one geographic region or one university no. or anything. It's just, it is what it is. And I think until really the standards are raised and, you know, people, ASHA maybe, <laughs> realizes that this is so much more a bigger part of what we do during the day than just maybe a three credit hour course in grad school. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. A lot of, I, I, I I sense that, you know, a lot of the programs are are somewhat hamstrung because they really don't can't provide the clinical experience, right, right. you know, yep. or the or, or yeah, the practicum experience. Although, you know, if you have a program um, like at Redlands, I mean, all of our students went to a medical setting after their first year. So they, they're going to see dysphagic patients, but finding the medical settings to do this is getting harder right, and harder. Right. I think, yeah, yeah, I I think that's if we can, you know, try to see any silver lining of COVID, I think the creativity on the part of the professors to be able to get these students, you know, just even seeing more case studies and doing, you know, Mm. simu case and things like that, you know, no, that's not ideal. But I think so many more students have been exposed to a lot more, you know, dysphagia cases than they would have been had they, you know, just been in traditional school. So, Um, That's one thing that I just, you know, I I hope continues, you know, even as clinical placements open up more, I really hope we can still continue to kind of bombard the students with different, you know, clinical cases and ways of seeing things. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just uh, a couple of months ago did one at at Redlands, which was all case oriented, you know, problem solving cases with, with dysphagia and, uh, you know, that that's what you know that's what we can do now yeah. you know yep. and that's what's needed yeah. you know and i agree you know yeah. that's such a great way for us to all learn too what do you think about future trends you know when you i think when you look at at the at the recent literature there's there's re- the the science the, the the hard science has really improved i think a lot and there's there's been a real focus on, you know, what's, what's normal. And, and as we've gotten more sophisticated in some of the measurement tools, we know more and more about how we swallow, how the mechanism works. And particularly, I think what's coming into view is more, more assessment, more understanding of the mechanism from a perspective of of pressure uh, measurements yeah. and swallowing is, is so much, yeah, a, a, a pressure sort of phenomena. So manometric studies have, have, have helped us, I think, understand a little bit more about, you know, how the pharynx works, how the upper segment works, and how those relate to, to uh, respiration. So the, the, the technology that we have that allows us to look at certain elements of swallow has improved. I'm not quite sure how, if we've made the bridge between how those 
findings have led to different treatment approaches. So, so large, large studies are, are going to have to be done basically that, that look at intervention, I think. And I'm, I'm not necessarily saying, you know, some of the, some of the typical things that we talk about in terms of the compensations that we all sort of know about how to help somebody through a acute stage, but what are the final outcomes? So for instance, you know, are our efforts really helping to reduce the number of aspiration pneumonias in a hospital and, you know, and, and which patients tend to, you, you know, if we pay attention and we identify it, is, is that going to make a difference? Because that has tremendous cost implications and also quality of life implications. Right, right. So, I, so I'm thinking that larger number studies that are controlled as much as possible that look at final health outcomes, whether it be from, you know, specific treatment approaches that include management of, of diet and, and just maybe feeding circumstances and, and specific attention to the patient with a swallowing problem, whether or not that makes a big difference, which I think it does, but I think we need the the data to to support that effort. Right. Right. So do you think do you think that manometry has a much bigger role in our future? I uh, yeah, it it prob- probably does in in terms of I guess understanding the mechanism. I'm not how it works. I'm not sure that it's a it's a diagnostic uh, test. It is in some cases, particularly in the esophagus, but it it may be of interest to find out how much and how long, for instance, the upper segment relaxes may be of interest, but I'm not sure how that might relate to how you might manage somebody's swallowing problem, except that it may be an issue in terms of bolus volume. So there seems to be some interesting relationship between the bolus size, how long the airway stay closed, and how long the upper segment stays open that may be of interest, you know, from a treatment perspective and in in how you how much you allow someone to eat in one particular bowl of size. So yeah. you, you start to see more and more studies, don't you, in this area that are actually uh, some SLPs in, in some of the um, larger hospitals are actually, you know, learning how to do manometrics as, as it relates to pharyngeal function and, and the uh, opening and closing of the, of the UES. Yeah. I think that brings up a good point, too, about, you know, I feel like it's only just been very recently that we've put quite an emphasis on esophageal dysphagia. I think it was kind of before then we were just so fixated on, you know, the vocal cords and and what is that doing? And we forget kind of the part that's actually supposed to be working properly. Yeah, well, there's um, there there's been more and more papers, not not so many, but enough that convinces me of something I've been convinced in a long time is that is that the the you can't look at this whole 
aerodigestive system is, is separate compartments. Yeah, and so and so the way so esophageal um, dysfunction is it, it affects pharyngeal function, and so that leads me to think that really, and I know it's not easy to do that a, a complete eval is going to look at mouth, pharynx, and esophagus, um, particularly in in our elderly population, because their their prevalence of, of esophageal-related functions, the older you get, the, the higher the incidence of, of potential disease. So, you know, when you miss that esophageal stage, and, and I know realistically it's not always easy to do it in one single visit or, you know, for, you know, reimbursement issues, et cetera. But, you know, if uh, there's too many times that I've seen normal, quote unquote, normal mouth and pharynx functions. And, and if I didn't look at the esophagus, I would have, I would have missed an esophageal disorder that may explain the whole issue. Yeah, yeah. I think just, you know, in my experience with doing fees, that just taught me a lot about being able to ah. see, you know, even there's nothing wrong yep. with the airway. You know, there's nothing wrong going yep. on there. So why are we blaming the dysfunction there when that's operating properly? It's just not in the esophagus. Uh -huh. So I think for me, yeah. that was seeing is believing from that yeah. aspect. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it really is. One of the notes I made here is that uh, the, a lot of the um, future, I think, you know, we, we have to think about uh, all of the literature that is starting to accumulate beyond the United States. So Asia, for instance, has, if you, if you look at the Dysphagia Journal, there's a, a lot more participation, particularly from Japan and Korea. They're, they do really ex excellent work and they're a little short on how their work might lead to better treatment, but their participation um, in Japan, it's interesting because it's, it's a lot of, of, of the dentists and the rehab doctors who are sort of leading the way there. Um, in Korea, it's the rehabilitation doctors. In China, it's ENT primarily, but um, China has the advantage of, of having the studies that they're reporting on or, or they've got large numbers, you know, and, and that's important. For instance, recently there was a uh, excellent study that looked at the prevalence of how many, and, and this is another area I think that's really kind of interesting and hot right now is, is how many people who are elderly living at home have symptoms of or at risk for dysphagia. And so this is this is uh, uh, an area that I think is going to open up um, and get our attention because the issue here is not is is more in in terms of treatment is aligned more to issues of prevention. So can how can we prevent uh, what we suspect might be dysphagia down the line based on their 
physical evaluation uh, and, and other issues. So the whole issue of muscle mass, strength, fragility, sarcopenia, those are really things that have sort of come up in, in the literature and that people ought to pay attention to from our perspective because um, we're involved with, with the potential for identifying people who may be at risk and, and making suggestions about what to do about it. So home health might be a very interesting area that, that focuses on this. Yeah, definitely. All right. Uh, what else did I want to mention here? Oh, so you got bored and you edited, you uh, revised your book. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, <laughs> yeah. The, the latest book, yeah, that Mike Clary and I have done. Yeah. We got, yeah, the, the third edition just came out in um, in August. Awesome. So, so we're happy to have that behind us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> do you want to, do you want to give a sneak peek about, is there, I, I guess, what, what caused you to, to revise, to make the third edition? Well, the publisher. Okay. Okay. <laughs> they're, Fair they're, enough. Re- they're really nasty about stuff. But it seems like about every four years they say, well, you know, people need, you know, or we need, you know, to make more money, you know, and uh, what, what is new in it that, that I'm happiest about is that, that we injected what we call clinical pearls, which are just little snippets that, that Mike and I, you know, throughout the years of seeing these patients have put in, you know, they may not be uh, so empirically based, but they're the kinds of things that you learn as you see patients on a floor and you, you know, and you sort of respond to and you hope that people might think, well, maybe I could do that or, gee, that's a great idea kind of thing. So we, we, we injected a lot of those in, in the text as, and we upgraded, you know, up, updated all of the references. Awesome. I love that. Yep. I think that's yep. that's kind of a, a big thing that's going on in our field right now is everyone is really rising to the occasion and just taking so many, you know, CEU courses and, and trying to learn as much as possible, which is wonderful. It's exactly what we need. But I think there's just this huge implementation piece that's missing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's I mean, a trained monkey can take some of the CEUs that we do, but it's actually applying the knowledge, you know, in a clinical setting. Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. You need somebody there to sort of say, this is what to do. This is what, you know. Yeah. Right. I, I, uh, I, I really, you know, my own training really appreciated that and got that along the way. You know, I mean, we when we went on rounds with Dr. Larson, every patient that we saw, we had to describe them. We had to show what we found on the clinical evaluation. We had to demonstrate it. I mean, Wednesday rounds were three hours with us. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So it was intense. But yeah, but I'm better off for it. Let me tell you that. (laughs) You learned your stuff that way, I I guess. I did. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. All right. Well, let's see. Any any final thoughts? Anything else you want to share? No, I think we're pretty much up to it. I hope that we... We uh, everybody sort of got an idea of what's gone on in the past. And, and um, it, you know, like I said in the beginning, it's been an interesting journey and something that um, even though I'm not, you know, active teaching or researching right now, I still follow what's what's going on in the field. And, it, and it's uh, really great to see that 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 my initial interest is is spurred other people's interest in it continues to 
grow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that you wish would have maybe caught on more? Oh, caught on more. Or anything that you wish we would be doing more widespread? Uh, I, I, I guess, I guess that early on, the only thing that I wish would caught on more was was that we would have, as SLPs, we would have got the consults for somebody that had a swallowing problem. And, and we really had to go out and get those consults. You know, it wasn't like, because MDs really need guidance in this area, but they don't or in the early days, they didn't know where to go. And, and you mentioned that some of them may still not know that. And yep. that's, yep. that's a little bit upsetting, but I think it's better now than it used to be. Well, good. I think that's, I think that's a great ending point. Cause I think that's, okay. you know, really what this is all about is, is there's still just a lot of people that don't know what, what we do in the field. And I think that's a huge part of our job that they don't, really talk about in grad school much, yeah. you know, like yeah. you're going to have to advocate for what you do. Yeah. And, yeah. You're right. You know. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Okay. I really appreciate you doing this. All right. I appreciate you and your listeners and it's been a fun thing. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Brower. Have a good day. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.